Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning again. Good morning. Good morning. I'm Carmen LaBerge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen on this Wednesday, the 11th of May, 2022. This this could be a conversation about thrifting. Are you, you know, are you a person who goes and looks for treasures, you know, at the local thrift store, maybe at garage sales? This this could be a conversation about thrifting. This could be a conversation about treasure hunting. Maybe you're a treasure hunter. Maybe you're one of those people that like goes to those storage units that, you know, or you buy those, all those returned items to Amazon that they put on pallets and sell. I mean, maybe you're that kind of a treasure hunter. I'm gonna, I, I want to talk about recognizing the value of something that the world doesn't recognize the value of, but it has great value and great worth, and we recognize the value of it. So the story from the headlines comes out of uh, Texas, where a an antique dealer, her name is Laura Young, um, in 2018 was, you know, thrifting. She was shopping around at uh, establishments like Goodwill, looking for things that had value that other people didn't recognize the value of. I mean, that's what she was doing. She says, I was looking for potential treasures. And that's when I spotted a bust on the floor under a table covered with dust at a Goodwill in Austin, Texas. So um, she she bought it for $34.99. And uh, an employee of Goodwill helped her carry the bust to her car. Uh, she says where we strapped it into the back seat with a seat belt. She describes uh, um, she describes, you know, the bust is like, you know, cold and, you know, never really looks at you and all those kinds of things. Um, and she started doing a little research. She said, you know, it was pretty dirty. Uh, and I started doing some research and it appeared to be, uh, a bust of a Roman general, Germanicus. And as she did more research on the bust of Germanicus, she discovered that a bust of Germanicus had been looted by allied soldiers in the second world war from, um, from a museum, an art museum in Germany. So um, she contacted Sotheby's, and Sotheby's, which is in a London auction house, said, yeah, we can't sell that. Um, that's a stolen artifact. What? What? Yes. Um, and so she then con- contacted an attorney in New York, um, you know, seeking to figure out exactly what to do and maybe how to get it repatriated and all of those kinds of things. Well, the long and the short of it is this is a 2000 year old bust of a Roman general and um, it was for sale in a goodwill and nobody wanted it for a long time. It was covered with dust, thirty four dollars and ninety nine cents. So um, 
this uh, this bust of Germanicus, who is the adopted son of the Roman Emperor Tiberius, father of the Roman Emperor Caligula, dated as far back as the first century A.D., previously on display at a museum in Germany. Um, the The museum was built by Bavarian King Ludwig in the 1840s to house artifacts and other objects, but it was damaged during um, the Allied bombing uh, of Germany in the Second World War. How it ended up in a goodwill in Austin, Texas, still unknown. Um, But uh, the bust of Germanicus is going to be displayed at a San Antonio museum, modern art, for a year. And then it's going to be returned to Germany in 2023, where it will be received by the Bavarian administration of the state-owned palaces, gardens, and lakes. There you go. Um, Do we recognize the value of authentic treasures? That's the question before us. Um, I was thinking this morning as I was reflecting on this uh, about the song that is developed, you know, based on Psalm 1910, Lord, you are more precious than silver. Lord, you are more costly than gold. Lord, you are more beautiful than diamonds. And nothing I desire compares with you. Nothing I desire compares with you. Spend some time in Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46 today, where Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then he covered it up. Um, then he went and he sold all that he had so that he could buy the field. Or again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who in finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Do you see the value of the knowledge of the king and the kingdom today? Do you see the value, the extraordinary value of knowing God in Christ Jesus our Lord? The world doesn't recognize him. Do we? Next up, uh, Heather Zeiger and I are going to be talking about some science headlines, um, including, you think we're alone in the universe? Is anybody else out there? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Um, We are in for a treat. I read a lot of what uh, Heather Zeiger is writing. You can find her at heatherzeiger.com. She's a freelance science writer out of Dallas. She's a research analyst with the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. She's got advanced degrees in chemistry and bioethics. She is uh, a smarty pants, and I love that. She writes at the intersection of ethics, society, and technology. Heather, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Morning, Carmen. Glad to be here. So let's let's start with the intersection uh, or the conversation at the intersection of science and religion. A lot of people say you have to choose one or the other, but that's really a false choice. Yeah, I think I think that's something that's perpetuated, perhaps in the media, perhaps just something that has gone on in our culture for a while. But really, these do not have to be too different areas of knowledge or two different fields of study. Um, From a Christian perspective, we can say all truth is God's truth, and there's the world he created. There's um, special revelation, the Bible, and general revelation. So these things, faith and science, do not have to be diametrically opposed. In your conversations with, um, you know, other smarty pants people, 
which I hope you don't take offense at me <laughs> suggesting this, but that that's like the reality, right? So um, in your yeah. conversations with other people who are actively engaged in um, advanced science and conversations related to, you know, sort of the growing edge of scientific discovery, um, how prevalent or how rare is it to find a person of faith? Yeah, so kind of in the circles I run in, um, I've met a lot of people that are Christians of some sort or theists or um, I went to a university, I went to uh, UT Dallas and that university has a large number of international students. So I've met people from different faiths. And so most scientists and, uh, and even more so once you get into the medical sciences, have some sort of faith. I've actually met very few truly atheistic scientists. Um, whether that faith informs their science or how much that overlaps probably is person dependent. Um, but actually, I have met a lot of people, most of the people I meet have some sort of, um, you know, some sort of religious view, some sort of religious background. Uh, I really haven't met a lot of atheists. Now I say that in the circles I run in. So of course that probably depends on what fields you're in and what universities you go to, what parts of the country you're in. Like I said, among international, uh, among international peers, that's going to be a little bit different. So yeah, that's, I think it's a myth to say that scientists are all atheistic. I really haven't, I haven't seen that personally. Well, well, you are evidence of of one. So, see, that's that's great. So, um, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, something that we hear about in the news, and most of us completely do not understand, and that is gain of function research or gain of function studies. Um, we heard it in relationship to, um, uh, you know, the development of what maybe possibly became COVID nineteen in a in a Chinese lab, like we. We, we have heard about gain-of-function studies. What are they, and what do we need to know? Right. So within the area of studying infectious diseases and viruses, gain-of-function studies is when you modify um, a virus to make it to see if it's going to be more contagious or more virulent. And in particular, these studies are done to see if the virus can go, say, from a animal to human, because that's a, a lot of viruses go from animal to human. Um, so within the lab, you can do that by forcing the virus to go through different types of cells. So this is a type of um, like a microevolution type thing where you evolve it through these different types of cells. Um, animal cells and see how it changes. Or what is more often the case is to modify, modify it genetically and then to see if the change here in this part of the virus then results in it being able to infect an animal cell. So that's, that's the idea of gain-of-function studies. It doesn't apply to all infectious disease or even all viral studies. It is one type of, of study uh, that you can do with viruses. Okay, so this gets like, you know, I mean, we got pandemic on the mind. So, of course. Um, yeah. Okay, do we need to be doing this? Do, do we need to be testing uh, and researching to see 
how we might manipulate a virus so that it can micro I mean like it doesn't it just doesn't seem like something that even ought to be done. Right, yeah, that's that's the big question. Um and even among infectious disease experts, this is this has been a big debate that's been going on for um at, at least 10 years. I think about it's dating back to 10 years. Is the question of do we need to do gain of function studies and in particular do we need to do gain of function studies on what are they consider potential pandemic pathogens, which is really hard to say. So they just kind of say PPPs, potentially (laughs) pandemic pathogens. So we're talking influenza, SARS, and MERS, things that have the potential to become pandemics. And that is the big question because it's a good scientific question to ask, hey, what about this virus can make it become more infectious? Um, What can Mm. make it become more communicable? And what changes need to happen And that's a good question to ask. I think that's a good question to explore. You want to know, hey, if if a pandemic happens or if something happens, what can we target for therapies, for vaccines, for that kind of thing? That's, I think, helpful in understanding the virus. The question is, is this the best way to study that? Is this the best way to answer that question? And that's a debate that has gone on. Within the infectious disease experts, uh, among infectious disease experts, this is the question they ask. Um, and I, I don't, I'm still reading the ethics, so I'm reading some of the background on these ethical debates. And I am, I am wondering, um, I, I'm becoming more convinced that there are probably alternatives that could help answer those questions just as well uh, as gain-of-function studies. But I'm still... I'm still reading the two different sides there. Okay, um, we are we're going to continue our conversation with Heather Zeiger here in just a moment. She's a science writer. She's a Christian. She's an ethicist. Um, and I'm going to ask about um, something I read about an alien meteorite that hit the Earth. Mm-hmm. Does that mean there's aliens? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Not since the days when I sat in Mr. Setacassi's seventh grade science class have I had the opportunity to ask the questions I'm going to ask now of Heather Zeiger. So I'm so thankful, Heather, that you're here and you're willing to endure my um, very pedestrian questions about science. Um, so uh, let's talk about alien life. Let's start with the word alien. Does it just mean from outside of our solar system or does it mean something else? Oh, no. Uh, alien. So, you know, we've had this term in the in the news that's sometimes considered a derogatory term where we'll say illegal aliens. It's someone that's not from here. Um, not necessarily the most politically correct term, but the idea is it's not from here. It's different um, from us. So alien is just a broad term. So, yeah, when we say something is alien, it's just not something that's from here. Okay, so an alien meteorite is a meteorite that's not from here. Well, isn't if it's a meteorite, if it's a meteorite, isn't it not from here? (laughs) Right. So there's meteorites that come from our solar system, and then there's Mm. meteorites that come from outside our solar system, and that is something that is very interesting to scientists because we know a lot more about what goes on in our solar system. So that's the the things that are 
our solar system is guided by the sun in the sense that everything is held together by the sun's gravity. So a lot of the stuff that hits other planets, a lot of the stuff that would hit earth is from our solar system kind of caught up in the sun's gravity. What's neat is when it comes from outside our solar system, uh, then you start, then you can start to see pieces from other areas and maybe even interrogate or investigate those pieces and see, hey, does this have the same chemical makeup? Does this, does this have the same components that we see in our solar system? So you can kind of get a little bit of an artifact from someplace else. Yeah. And so that's, it's very cool. It's worth absolutely investigating and it leads to all kinds of um, interesting questions. Um, we think of uh, Star Trek, right? And we imagine that uh, out there somewhere, maybe there are other beings with whom we might one day relate. So talk about that question among um, among people that you interact with. Like, what is the intelligent life conversation uh, like? Well, so there's kind of two different ways to go about this. There's There's the science fiction way uh perspective where it's like oh man what if there's what if there's intelligent life out there and it's this idea of there's got to be a bunch of there's got to be a a bunch of alien races and that's that's kind of the star trek you know idea of let's go explore this and then there's what has there's a much more tempered view and that's more of what you kind of have seen just over the years of trying to look for any kind of extraterrestrial type um life at all. I'm talking organic life or anything. And that has not, so far, they have not found any kinds of uh, alien life, let alone intelligent alien life. So that is something that people are still exploring. In fact, there's relatively little life that we have found in the universe. So um, that we can see, right? We can only interrogate so much. Um, So that's very interesting contrast there between this idea of hey, there's all this intelligent life. And, and of course, they want it to be intelligent life versus, well, we found some amino acids one time in this meteorite. So mm. interesting. All right. Yeah. So um, so many things that we could talk about here. But when you when you made reference to the solar system and you talk about the sun, OK, can I just confess to you? I had this like crazy aha moment. I'm sure that I should have learned this Um much, much earlier in life, but the sun does not actually rise and set. I mean, like, I know that, like, once I heard somebody say it out loud, I was like, oh, that's true. The earth rotates into, like, my, the the place where I could observe the sun during particular hours of the day, but the sun is not actually rising and setting. And then the guy went on to say, and tides are not actually coming in and going out. And I was like, whoa, wait a second, what? And so when we, when, we talk, when we talk in like common language about sunrise and sunset, it's actually a pretty non-scientific thing to say. So yes, that's a non-scientific thing to say in the sense that you're not accurate in what is going on. Having said that, as a, as a say, we'll say a lay scientist, you are saying something about what you're observing. And from your reference point on Earth, it does look like the sun is rising and setting. And there are things that you can observe 
and things that you can say about, you know, from my reference point, the sun rising and setting. So it always rises in the east and sets in the west. And that can lead to asking some scientific questions and learning about, okay, which direction does the earth rotate? So it's, you say it's a non-scientific thing, but actually it kind of starts with, uh, any kind of science starts with those observations and those observations have to be from my reference point. Well, I appreciate, um, I, I just, I appreciate the, the awareness that comes when we allow for questions that grow out of our observations. And then as Christians, we're not afraid to press the edge of the question or beyond the edge of the question, because there's uh, somehow as a person of faith, there's safety in asking questions about what is not yet known. Um, because ultimately, you know, I know that the whole universe is in God's hands and it's not as if I'm going to ask a question that goes beyond him. Right. So many of the scientists in the scientific, uh, the, the, the great scientists we think of during the scientific revolution, so many of them were theists and many of them were asking questions like, how did God make this? How did God create this? They saw creation. They saw nature as worth studying because of their belief in God. So their questions came from wanting to understand the artist by studying his artwork, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. Um, I love talking with you, Heather. Thank you so much. You guys can find Heather Zeiger at her website, heatherzeiger.com or on Twitter at hzeiger. Um, Heather, thank you so much. I hope we can talk again. Great. It was fun. Thanks, Carmen. Yeah, you can find her at the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Jesus and gender. Jesus and gender. Let me just pause on those two words for just a second. Jesus and gender. What comes to mind? What do you think you know about complementarianism or egalitarianism? What confuses you? What questions do you have? What does it really mean to live as sisters and brothers in Christ? Jesus and gender. Jesus and gender is the book. Elise Fitzpatrick is the co-author along with Eric Schumacher. Uh, Elise joins us next on the topic of Jesus and gender, living as sisters and brothers in Christ. I'm thrilled to be talking today with Elise Fitzpatrick, Sister in Christ. She's written more than 25 books on daily living, living and the Christian life. Um, she is a biblical counselor. You may be familiar uh, with her from her 2020 book, Worthy, Celebrating the Value of Women, which she co-authored with Eric Schumacher. Um, she joins us today on their newest collaborative work, Jesus and Gender living as sisters and brothers in Christ. Elise, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. I'm glad to be with you again. 
So I want to warn you in advance. I want to talk about the local church. I want to talk about marriage and parenting, mothering, grandmothering. Um, and I want to talk about the identity of men and women, our roles, and how we've misunderstood them and the gospel. So I have a lot on my mind and heart this morning. Um, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I feel like this yeah. is a conversation about everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that... You know, just trying to figure out who we are as men and women and what, how has the church's stereotypes of what men and women are supposed to be played into the cultural problems we're having right now. So, yeah, this is a conversation that really, I think, needs to, needs to happen all across, all across our country. So you have been... In the church for a long time, you have been married for 45 years. You have been in the conversations among Christians for a long time. But at some point along the way, um, your understanding of the gospel expanded. I'm going to use that Mm -hmm. language. Um, Talk with us about sort of your, your sense of aha and then growing into your understanding of the gospel. And then out of that... You're, you know, sort of wanting to re-examine uh, men and women as image bearers of the living God, the worthiness of women, and then this conversation about who we are as brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, thank you. Um, I was saved in 1971, uh, which makes me really old. And, um, you know, the gospel was important to me at that point. I was glad to know that I was forgiven. But then as I walked with Christ through the uh, decades afterwards, the gospel sort of faded in importance. And what became really important was uh, me learning how to do all the things I was supposed to do as a Christian and sort of getting the bus down the road. Then Uh, A few decades ago, I began a journey where I understood that the gospel, the life, death, uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ was not as important to me as it should have been. And instead, other things became important, like how I'm supposed to live today and stuff like that. And it's not that how I'm supposed to live today isn't important. It's just that it should not be the most important thing. And then off of that... I've written a number of books, which I know we've talked about, and then I I finally came to this discussion of, okay, if the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is in fact supposed to be the most important thing in our lives as Christians, then how does that affect how I think about myself as a woman, how I think about my brothers in Christ? What was Jesus' attitude to, toward the relationship between men and women? What was his primary attitude about questions like authority and submission? And that's when I began then to say, all right, what does the Bible have to say particularly about women? And then what does it have to say about my relationship with uh, my brothers in Christ? And what we did was we looked at primarily the passage in Philippians 2, which I'm sure you know, Carmen, which basically says, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Adopt the same attitude as Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be exploited. 
So here's the point. We can have all kinds of discussions about who gets to be in charge. But Jesus' attitude is, even if you believe that you're the one that's supposed to be in charge, you're not supposed to exploit that. And I think that much of what we've taught in the church really has more to do with the world's ideas about being in power. And instead of asking the question, how can I voluntarily humble myself in order to serve others? Gender has become one of those battlegrounds in the culture mm-hmm. today. And so we, uh, we want to consider the question that Elise is provoking here from Philippians chapter 2. Um, when Scripture tells us to adopt the same attitude as in Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, but instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Um, The question that is asked in the book, Jesus and Gender, is this. What do you think adopt the same attitude means if not to live a life of self-emptying love? We're talking with Elise Fitzpatrick. We're talking about her new book, Gender and Jesus. And yes, we do have some copies to give away today. If you'd like to enter the drawing for those, um, text the word book to 877-933-2484. Jesus and Gender, Living as Brothers and Sisters in Christ. Um, Elise, I imagine the pushback um, has been pretty quick, but that's probably not a surprise to you after having written Worthy and been like publicly engaged in the conversation and the culture. Um, is it, is it, mo- well, I mean, I guess I'm projecting when I ask this question. It seems to me that it would be most sad when that comes as resistance from within the church where the power over has become so much a part of the conversation. Yeah, that's um, that's a good observation. Um, actually, you know, I, Carmen, I'll be honest with you. We've gotten a little bit of pushback. We got more pushback on Worthy. Um, I think that the church in general is really uh, uh, open to a fresh word. I think people are tired of the gender wars in the church, and they're really looking for a fresh way to think about this. So yes, of course, there's there's pushback. There's pushback any time that a person who assumes that their authority uh, is given to them, uh, you know, by God, and nobody's going to touch it. Uh, there's always going to be pushback there. But I think, honestly, people are ready for a fresh word. And what we've tried to do in Jesus and Gender is say, look, at, let's change the conversation. Let's change the conversation from who gets to be in authority, who's supposed to submit. Those are all questions that I think have been answered over and over again. I think that the question ought to be, how can I give away whatever authority I think I have in order to serve my brothers and sisters and and to live for, as Christ did, their flourishing? So that means that, it, let's say that I'm a husband in a marriage and I believe that uh, I'm supposed to be the head of the household. Great. Lay down your life 
and live the way Christ did. If on the other hand, I think that no, it's supposed to be mutual submission, great, lay down your life, live as Christ did, live for the flourishing of the other. That's what it means to be Christic. And that's the word we're trying to use rather than complementarian or egalitarian to try to say, let's be Christic, give away whatever authority you think you have for the flourishing of the people around you. Oh, that's so good. Um, Complementarian and egalitarian words that Elise just used. We're going to do a quick primer on them when we come back, and then we're going to lay out what it means to be Christic, this vision of living as brothers and sisters in Christ. The book is Jesus and Gender, Living as Brothers and Sisters in Christ. We got copies to give away. Text the word book to 877-933-2484. We'll be right back with Elise Fitzpatrick. If you think for just a moment about how Jesus included men and women um, among his disciples, uh, among those who are charged with uh, carrying forth the gospel generation to generation, if you consider for a moment Jesus' relationships not only with men but with women, um, you will better understand the conversation in Jesus and gender. It's the newest collaborative work between our conversation partner today, Elise Fitzpatrick, and her co-author. Um, and um, when you when you think about um, co-authoring a book, and you and Eric have now done this a couple of times, um, that in and of itself is a witness and a testimony to uh, how we how we're better together than we are apart. And I think that that leads us into a conversation, um, Elise, about complementarianism, egalitarianism, and then what it might look like to be Christic. So can you just unpack some of that for us? Sure, I'll try to do that real quickly. Uh, Complementarianism would be a system of belief about relationships between males and females in the church where... um, they they would say that men and women are equally created in the image of God. And also that women and men have differing roles and in some ways almost differing natures. Um, <clears throat> then egalitarianism would be a system of thought that men and women are, yes, also e- uh, created equally in the image of God, but that the roles that they would have would not be um, consigned simply by their by their gender. So they would say, okay, it's mutual submission, mutual support, and that would be egalitarian, which kind of means like equal. And complementarianism says, yes, there are differing roles, even though we are both males and females made in the image of God. What we've tried to do is move past those, what we would call gender roles discussion, 
uh, and just said, all right, basically what the Bible says is that, yes, sure, there, there may be times where you have a few passages in covenantal relationships where we talk about where we talk about roles. But what we're saying is that in Christ, believing men and women are to glorify God by cooperating for the advance of the gospel and imitating Christ in voluntary humiliation, reciprocal benevolence, and mutual flourishing. And those are the things that we think that the New Testament teaches us, particularly as we think about Philippians 2, Christ's self-emptying, how we are commanded to adopt that same attitude. And then, Carmen, you know, one of the things we wanted to do was say, okay, we need a new word for that. And so we want to use the word Christic, which basically means relating to Christ. So as a Christian woman, How am I supposed to uh, resemble Christ, relate to Christ, and really move past the discussions of who gets to be in charge? As soon as we start talking about who gets to be in charge, we're we're in an area that Jesus basically said, don't even talk about it. You know, the disciples continued to come to him and says, and say, can I be in charge? One of the, a couple of the disciples' mom came to uh, Jesus and said, can my son, sons be in charge? Jesus said, no, you guys are missing it all together. It's not about who gets to be in charge. It's about who gets to die. That's what uh-huh. it's about. And, you know, so changing up that conversation, we think also, and I, and I know you're seeing it, that the stereotypes that have been foisted upon, I think, particularly girls, but also boys in the church, saying to uh, young women who are growing up in the church, in order to be a Christian woman, you need to like certain things and dislike other things. And in order to be a Christian man, you need to like to shoot guns and eat raw meat. I don't know, just saying that. Um, What we want to say is maybe some of the problems that we're seeing with our young people as far as uh, gender identity is concerned is because they are pushing back against what we have said are uh, stereotypical roles for men and women. The New Testament says nothing about stereotypical roles. Um, As a matter of fact, it's really shocking how many times Jesus interacted with women. He had a group of women that itinerated with him. We can read about them in Luke 8. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul in Romans 16 over and over again talks about all these women who are co-laboring with him. In Philippians, we hear about women who are co-laboring with him. So what we want to do is say, look, let's have, a, let's have a different conversation. Let's move past who gets to be boss and instead look for ways where we can lay down our lives in voluntary humiliation, reciprocal benevolence, and mutual flourishing. Elise, those are um, those are so those are such good and strong callings, um, and so I, I genuinely appreciate um, the way you um, and Eric studied the scriptures. You're bringing scripture forward. Um, this is a new conversation for some people. There's a resistance. There's a built-in resistance um, for both men and women to rethink 
the categories of thinking. And that's really what you're asking us to do. You're not just asking us to rethink a few things. You're asking us to rethink the categories in which we've been thinking. That's a pretty mammoth shift. Um, That shift takes place when I understand the gospel as something bigger and broader and deeper and wider and more enduring and all-encompassing than just a me and Jesus um, formulaic uh, salvation question. That That is the gospel, but that's not the whole gospel. Um, and if we're going to preach the whole gospel for the whole world, then we're going to have to understand just how big and broad it is and how all-encompassing it is and how it includes men and women in terms of its advance. Um, I'd love to I'd love to circle back around at some point to this conversation as it applies to um, what I think about in terms of what I see globally and our willingness to allow women, encourage women, um, support women when they go to share the gospel somewhere else with some other people group, but somehow we devalue the same in our own culture. It's so interesting to me, that paradox. Yeah, that's it's really it's really a problem. You know, uh, any number of women that we've talked to, um, they say, well, you know, I I see that I can't be used here in in the American church. So uh, either they go overseas, which, you know, is a blessing for overseas um, or they start parachurch ministries because they have a call on their life, they have gifting, but they're unable frequently to use those things in their local churches. And, you know, Carmen, the gifts of the Spirit, whatever you may think about that, it, it, they're not gendered. Right. It's not, right. The gifts of the, the spirit, spirit is not gendered. I mean, like, right, this is part of right. the conversation we have to have. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All you right. Know, it's, it's so good. It's I know we, you and I could talk for hours on this. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're up against the clock. Um, if you want more of it, and I know you do, you can find Elise Fitzpatrick online, EliseFitzpatrick.com. The book is Jesus and Gender, Living as Brothers and Sisters in Christ, co-authored with Eric Schumacher. Um, we have copies to give away today. You can text the word book to 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. This is amazing I just feel like we never have enough time together, but I'm so grateful and appreciative of the time that we do have the opportunity to share. So thank you so much for including me in your day. Um, I am going to be lifting you up in prayer today. Thank you for lifting me up as well. Particular, um, Particular prayers today for people who are just at odds with the local church. I have a real heart for um people who are currently disconnected as believers from local expressions of the church. God doesn't have a plan B. The church is it. The church is God's plan. And so I want us to see us more intimately connected with it. All right. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.